My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Hi, I'm John Hemminghouse, speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast, the ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Are you one of the many people who went to church as a child and maybe in your teen or adult years eventually walked away from any serious attempt at a relationship with God? There are many in our society today who truly believe that they have outgrown any kind of faith in God. They feel they have a good handle on the teachings of Christianity and at least in their minds have reasons to dismiss it as untrue. This is nothing new. In Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, it seems that the majority of those with whom Jesus grew up could not bring themselves to believe that their neighbor, maybe even their relative, could possibly be the Messiah. In our series on the methods of Christ, where our pastor has been examining how Jesus lived during his public ministry on earth, we come today to Christ's return to the place where he spent most of his growing up years, the tiny town of Nazareth. He had been there about a year earlier, and his message was not well received. In fact, the people were so angry about what our Lord said to them on that occasion, they tried to kill him. Now, later in his ministry, as the evidence of his power and miracles were becoming undeniable, he returned in all likelihood for the last time to preach at the synagogue in his hometown. I'll save it for Pastor Jones to describe what happened, but let me encourage you, if you're one of those who have decided that you're too well informed to believe in the Christ, to listen into our broadcast today. I pray you'll be challenged and convicted by Jesus' second and final recorded visit to his hometown and their tragic reaction toward him. Turn with me to Mark chapter 6, and you might want to, if you're fast, get a marker maybe in Luke chapter 4. So it's Mark chapter 6 and Luke chapter 4. read recently of um, one of Aesop's fables concerning a fox and a lion. And in the fable, pretty simple story, fox had never seen a lion before. And the first time he met uh, the king of the beast, the fox was nearly frightened to death. Second meeting, uh, the fox was not frightened quite as much. And the third time, the fox went up and even chatted with the lion. And here was Aesop's um, uh, conclusion. Familiarity makes even the most frightening things seem quite harmless. And um, we also have a statement, and it goes way back. Um, I think even, I was trying to think of what I was reading. It might even go back to the time before Christ. You've heard that familiar, familiarity often can breed contempt. You've heard that? Well, in some ways, I think we're seeing that here in Mark chapter 6, when Jesus is going to go back to his hometown. And um, being familiar with Christ um, and having faith in Christ are two different things. They're not the same. A lot of people confuse them. And the same thing, you know, um, uh, going to church every week and even being brought up in church and being familiar with the gospel and familiar with the Bible and truly believing and practicing the scriptures are often two vastly different things. And so we're going to see that this morning. Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the privilege of being able to be together. And Lord, we give this time to the asking that you'll open our hearts to your word. And Lord, we also think about the children that just walked out a few moments ago. And those that are teaching them that you might bless that time. Every one of those souls, Lord, they matter to Thee. We pray for their souls, too, that they would come to know You as Lord and Savior, and that You might um, bless their hearts as they listen to Your Word and bless those that teach them. 
We pray now that you'll open our hearts to understand and not just hear it and mentally um, uh, get what's going on. But Lord, I pray that you would do your spiritual work through your word and your spirit this morning. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's start out with uh, chapter 6, verse 1. It says, And when he went, when he went out from thence, he came into his own country, and his disciples follow him. Now, uh, we're talking about the Lord's return then when he comes back to, uh, uh, to his town of Nazareth. And just a couple thoughts there. Um, what had happened the last time he was in Nazareth? when he taught the people in his own synagogue. Does anybody remember this? It was actually the very first sermon um, from what, when you put the life of Christ together, recorded in the scriptures that Jesus preached. It was in his hometown. That, that he's preached before, but the first one that we actually have written down is in, in, it's in Luke chapter 4. And, and by the way, we're going to go there in a few moments. So, um, But does anybody remember what happened when Jesus got done preaching that, uh, that time before? He was talking about the scriptures being fulfilled in him. That's exactly right. How was it received by his hometown? It did not go well. They tried to kill him as a result of what he said in his own hometown. Now that, um, from I was reading, again, guys who know more about you know timing out the life of Christ than I would know. They said that probably happened about a year or so before. So just to keep in mind, when he goes back to Nazareth, he had been rejected there. And um, um, so, uh, matter of fact, let's go back and uh, uh, we'll, uh, you can just flip over to Luke chapter 4. We'll, we'll be talking about that in just a moment. And um, it was three years ago that I preached on that passage. Um, and it, there's a lot to it. And so um, we'll get to it in just a moment. They also tried to kill him there. And I don't know about you, but that would not be a place I'd want to run back to anytime soon. You know what I'm saying? If someone had tried to kill me, and then it's your own hometown, you're thinking, "Hey, I, you know, I, I've spent enough time with these people. I'm, I'm kind of done with them." And, and, and the Lord wasn't that way. But I want you to notice, um, but just, just before I go to Luke, that there is a similar attitude, as you'll see when, when Jesus is teaching this time. Not exactly the same. Doesn't get as violent. But I'm going to read verse 2 and 3 of chapter 6, and then we're going to head over to chapter 4 of the Gospel of Luke. It says, When the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this, which is, un which is given unto him, that even, the that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and of Judah and, si and, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. All right, now, um, let's talk then about this similar attitude. Uh, the reaction to Christ's earlier message is found in Luke chapter 4. So let's go back there. Luke chapter 4. And if you'll pick up at verse 17, we'll see what happened when Jesus was there maybe a year or so earlier. It says, And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now that's Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, does anybody have a cross-reference as to where that is found in the Old Testament? 
It's Isaiah 61. It's, the, it's verse 1, 2, and the first part of verse 3. He cut it off mid-sentence. Very interestingly. We won't get into the reason why he did that, but he did. He cut it off mid-sentence. Now, notice verse 20. And he closed the book. And he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. So you notice his first visit, you find great attention to him. They are listening and listening intently. This is their hometown boy. He's been preaching and doing miracles elsewhere. And his fame has been growing. Now I'm talking about a year earlier than Mark 6. Jesus has been doing miracles. People are, are, are getting excited about what's going on. And now he's returned to his hometown, and there's a sense of pride here in, in that, hey, he's, our, he's the son of, of Nazareth. And there's also a sense of, of they really want to hear what he's got to say. They've heard him elsewhere. And so there's not only attention, but there's also approval. Notice, if you would, um, in verse 22, And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Now that sounds very similar to Mark chapter 6. They, they are, uh, there's, so there's approval. There's, the, there's this, uh, uh, boy, isn't it wonderful what he's teaching and how wise he is and all of that. But now notice we have an objection, and it sounds very similar to what you find in Mark 6. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? What, what do they mean by that? Why ask that question? Is not this Joseph's son? Joseph is a simple, normal man. He's a carpenter. And evidently, he's still alive. Seems like he's alive then. And it's kind of interesting, when you come to Mark 6, he may be dead by then because they now call him Mary's son. Now, could be another thing going on there, but it's interesting that Joseph, in all probability, dies during Jesus' public ministry. And you can understand why those who did not want to believe him would say, well, why, if you could raise other people from the dead, why did you, why did you let your own dad die? God acts in ways we can't figure out, folks. When he says, my ways are higher than your ways, it's the truth. Be that as it may, their initial reaction is one of approval. But then there's this objection. How can you think that the carpenter's son is, is claiming to be the Messiah? Because Jesus made a statement here that I think is particularly um, important. I skipped it. Back in Luke chapter 4, look again at verse 21. When he read that prophecy in Isaiah, and he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So what's he saying? I'm the fulfillment of this passage. I'm the fulfillment of the Messiah that's to come. And that's why they're saying, now hold on a second. This guy, he's got he's tremendous words. Definitely is a tremendous teacher, knows the scripture, has a grasp of these things. But the carpenter's son, we're going to say he's the Christ? He's the one that's been promised? I mean, what's the carpenter? Remember, when they think Messiah, they think military leader. They think somebody who's going to overthrow Rome. How is this guy going to do that? The objection. 
They really don't want to accept that. And then we have this reaction of violent anger. Now, I'm going to skip over why they're, what Jesus says that makes them so angry for a moment. Skip down with me to verse 28 and notice how angry these people get. Almost like a switch been turned down. Okay? And when they in the synagogue, all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out. That's Jesus. They thrust him out of the city, led him to the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. They were going to throw him over a cliff and have him killed. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. Again, Christ uh, at that point exercises his power as God would direct and does not let him kill him. So we have this, um, this sudden wrath, which leads to an attempt of murder. And so we have to ask ourselves, what did Jesus say that brought such a change in attitude in these people? Well, the first thing we've already uh, talked about, and that is his claim that he was Messiah. This day, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. But there's something else. Let's go back to verse 23. That's where we left off. We're in Luke 4, and I want to read verse 23 to 27 and see if you can understand what would make these people angry. Not only are they saying, well, how is this guy claiming to be Messiah? I mean, we, he grew up in our town. He, he, you know, he's the carpenter's son. Uh, we, there's no way. Verse 23. And he, Jesus, said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. We have a similar, this way in our culture, many times you say well, the mechanic drives around the, the beat-up car. And so he's saying, okay, here's a proverb that you guys know in Jesus' day, physician, heal yourself. If you're, if you're really a physician, then you should be able to heal yourself. So how does he apply that? Keep reading. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. Okay, we've heard about these miracles in these other cities. Let's see you do it here. And Jesus is expressing what many of them are thinking. And that is, okay, we've heard all these reports. Let's see if you can do it here. And he said unto them, verse 24 now, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias. That's Elijah. When the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and when the great famine was throughout all the land, but unto none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon. That's a, that's a Gentile area. Unto a woman that was a widow. And so what is Jesus saying? He's actually giving them some warnings here. The first one is those closest to a prophet often miss him. Now, by the way, this is a reason why um, there's a controversy, you, you wouldn't be familiar with this, but there's a controversy among uh, Bible-believing pastors as to how close you get to your people, literally. And there are many pastors that believe that you don't have close friends in your church. You kind of keep everybody at bay. And, you have, you, and the reason why is because if they get too familiar with you, they won't listen to you. Literally. It's a, actually, I've been in a class... And, and seen this de debated. Um, and so there are many people that feel that way. And I've thought about it, tried to share it with the class. I don't know how much they agreed with me, but 
My thought is simply this. Jesus walked with his disciples to the place. And, and they're right on this. Uh, those of you that have a military background, you know what I'm talking about. The, the, they do not, generals don't fraternize with, with uh, the enlisted guys, right? You have the officers, you have the enlisted. I mean, that's the way it works. And, and there's, there's this distance. But when you look at the life and ministry of Christ, you find him living with his disciples. You find him right there with them. And I'll show you that, that, the, that the issue that the many pastors bring up is correct. Go with me to John chapter 14. In the fact that when you get so close to an individual, sometimes you become where, where you're familiar and you think, well, I know, you know, I know this guy and I know his strengths and weaknesses. Now, Jesus didn't have any weaknesses. But living so close to Christ and being so close to him, they many times struggled with the issue of who he was more than some of the people that came from afar. This is the night of his betrayal, folks. John 14, the night of his betrayal. They're, they're actually about to walk toward the Garden of Gethsemane. They have just, uh, uh, Judas has just been identified as the betrayer. They've just celebrated the first Lord's Supper. And Jesus says in John 14 and verse 6, I, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. A verse that many of us have, have used throughout our, our, our uh, lives in many, many different ways. Verse 7. If ye had known me, ye should have known the Father also, and from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you? And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? He said, Philip, you've been so close to me. Don't you realize who I am? Now, I want you to skip over with me. Same, same context, same conversation. They're actually now walking toward the Garden of Gethsemane. And skip down to chapter 16 and verse 28. Okay, I'm still in John, John 16 and verse 28. Jesus, now, they're walking toward where he's going to be arrested. So this is this late in his ministry. Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. Verse 29, his disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. Now we are sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. And don't you ask yourself this, how in the world could you be doubting that now? Because they've been so close to him. Now notice what Jesus answers, very revealing. Verse 31, Jesus answered them, do you now believe? <laughs> Are you sure you do? Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. Jesus is saying, I know you're still struggling with this. And it is possible for God's children to really struggle with doubts and fears. Definitely. And sometimes, again, because... We've been uh, in, uh, in the proximity and around the Lord. And uh, some, again, these disciples were struggling with his identity, more so than, than, say, the centurion, who never even physically met our Lord, 
but said, if you speak the word, you can heal my servant. I don't even have to come to you. Or the, the, the woman who, who runs Christ down because she, her daughter is demon-possessed and, 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 and will, will take whatever the Lord is, is giving her to, to, to basically hang on in faith that, God, you can help me. And yet his disciples who walked with him. So the issue is this, that when you draw close to, to some people and you, you allow yourself to be vulnerable to people, yes, there is a familiarity with that, and yes, there can come a lack of respect for who you are. But here's my answer. Jesus Christ did that. He's our example. And for that reason, I've never tried to hold people back from being friends with them and being close to them. Even though I do understand that at times uh, my stature in front of them is going to be less. It's just the way it works. But that was our Lord's ministry. That's what he did. Now, I want you to think about this then. Here are these, he's made this claim to be Messiah. He has um, uh, raised their objection that they're thinking in their heads, and that is, okay, you've done things elsewhere. I'm back in Luke chapter 4. And, and, you've, um, and, and yet, uh, Jesus is saying, you miss the, the ones who are closest to you. I, yes, I grew up in these streets. Yes, I walked around Nazareth. I worked here. For, think of it, for the first 30 years of his life, he was not known as a prophet. He was not known as Messiah. He was known as a carpenter, the son of a carpenter. Be careful, he's warning them. Be careful that you don't miss me because I've been so close to you. There are many people that, that because they grew up in church, they just assume that they know the Lord. Maybe they went through the in their church, whatever it was, we don't do confirmation here, but let's say they did confirmation or the baptism or church membership or whatever it is, but that does not make you a Christian just because you've been around Christ. He's warning them about this. Now notice he also warns them that God will pass over those closest to him who lack faith. And yet he gave us one example already about Elijah. He said there were, there were, um, there were many widows in the, in the days of the famine of Elijah. What he's talking about is there was a three and a half year drought in the nation of Israel that Elijah had prophesied. And how many people were starving at that time? And yet, Jesus is saying, God didn't use Elijah to save one widow in Israel. And the implication is this, because they didn't believe. They wouldn't have trusted Elijah to do, to, to, to obey him what he said to do. Now I want you to think about this. Elijah shows up in that, in that story that Jesus is referencing in, in, in Luke 4.25. It's been a famine going on, and, and he shows up, and here's a, wi a, a widow. She's, she's a Gentile widow. She's never met Elijah before. And she is literally going out to gather some sticks in order to make one last fire, and she's going to make a, a little cake of bread for herself and her son, and that will be the end of her supply. And as far as she knows, she's going to starve to death, and her son's going to starve to death. Now, we've never seen anything like that in our country for decades and decades. Matter of fact, I don't think we have ever since we've come here as a people. But that's how desperate she was. She is looking at literally her last meal. And this stranger comes up to her. He's obviously Jewish. And he says to her this. Would you, uh, first of all, would you get me a drink of water? She actually leaves what she's going to do to go get him a drink of water. And then he says, while you're on your way, he said, could you make me a little cake of bread? And that turned her around and she said, listen, she said, 
I'm just coming out to get some, some wood to, to, to make a last meal for my son. We're going to die. And then Elijah says this. Make me a little bread first. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. And if you'll do that, thus says the God of Israel, you're never going to want until the famine's over. Now, let me ask you a question. How many widows would, would do that? Would take some of the last bread that herself and her son had to eat and would trust God to that extent. And what Jesus is saying is this. When God looked across the widows of Israel, he didn't find one. But he found a Gentile that would believe him. She wasn't as familiar with the God of Israel, but she believed that he could help her. And sight unseen on this prophet of God, she was willing to risk everything to obey the Lord. And what Jesus is saying is God will pass over those who may be more familiar with him, but don't have that kind of faith to find someone that really will believe. Notice his second example. It's in verse 20, um, 26 and 27. Um, I'm sorry, verse 27. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisus, or that's Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. Now I want you to think about that story. Here's a man that was one of the, one of the generals of the army of Syria. Their arch enemies were the nation of Israel. And in one of his attacks on the nation of Israel, they carried away a captive girl, little girl. Made him his, her his slave. And this little girl, she treats, he treats her well, but she's, she's been taken away from her homeland. She's living now with Naaman and his wife. And Naaman has leprosy. And the little girl has grown to appreciate and maybe love her master. And she talks to her, to Naaman's wife one day and she says, you know what? It's too bad that, that, that my master wasn't in, 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 in Israel because there's a prophet down there that could take away his leprosy. And Naaman's wife, rather than blowing that off and saying, oh, that's craziness, she grabbed that. They'd heard about the God of Israel. They didn't know him personally, but they'd heard about him. All kinds of different things from the Exodus. The people around the Middle East knew many of these stories. She grabbed that. And she went and talked to Naaman himself. She said, you know what our little servant girl, the Jewish girl said? She said, the God of Israel could heal you of your leprosy. And Naaman didn't blow that off either. Naaman got so serious about it, he went to the king of Syria. And he asked the king, he said, would you write a letter for me to the king of Israel? Now remember, these guys are not on really good terms. It's like it is today. They, they really are constantly, at, you know, just ready to go at each other. And so he says, would you write a letter to the king of Israel and ask him to, uh, to heal me of my leprosy? And the king of Syria doesn't blow Naaman off. He says, okay, he writes the letter. They send it down to the king of Israel with Naaman in, in tow. He brings it down, personally delivers it to the king of Israel. And if you remember, the king of Israel tears his clothes in Greek. Probably didn't do this in front of Naaman. Gets off on the side, tears his clothes and says, Am I God? How am I ever going to heal this guy of his leprosy? This doesn't happen. Elisha, the prophet, got word of that. And Elisha said, Send him down here. 
And if you remember, I won't go into the details, but Naaman was healed of his leprosy. Here's what Jesus is saying. There's not another leper in Israel that had enough faith to come to the man of God and say, I want to be healed. And what Jesus is saying to these people then is that those closest to a prophet, those familiar with the prophet often miss him. That God will pass over even those closest to him who lack faith, but he will help those with faith even if they are from Gentile areas. And that's what made those people so angry. Are you saying that because, you know, that we've grown up in the town, that we know you personally, and if we don't accept you as Messiah, that, that now we're going to be judged by God? And that's exactly what Jesus was saying. And that's why they tried to kill him. So now let's notice back in Mark chapter 6, you can leave Luke 4 behind, and let's go back and see how it goes this time. And what we find is we have that similar attitude there was a tension, uh, uh, well, let's just notice it. You notice in, in this time, there's a, there's a different ratio. Why, why say that? Chapter 6, verse 1 of Mark says, And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples follow him. By now, he's got some disciples. Probably all 12 of them are with him. And what I mean by that, Nazareth's not a big uh, town. The, the matter of fact, it's a very, very small town. I think I was reading yesterday, maybe at max 500 people. It was this morning I was reading that. So you're looking at a synagogue that's probably not that big. But this time Jesus isn't alone. He's got 12 other grown men with him and probably some other people with him as well. And you'll find when the ungodly are not in such big numbers, they don't tend to be quite so violent. And so Jesus has a little bit of a different ratio there. You also notice there's, a, there's some the same observation is made though. Again, back in verse 2, when the Sabbath day was come, he began, many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? Again, that same attitude, the same thought. Hey, he's, got a, he's a great teacher. And what wisdom is this which is given unto him that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? They're not denying his ability to teach, they're not denying his great wisdom, they're not denying the miracles that he's done elsewhere. It's becoming undeniable. But notice again, verse 3. Is not this the carpenter. Now they're not saying the carpenter's son anymore. So you got to wonder, maybe Joseph is dead by now. They remember Jesus as a carpenter himself. Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary? The brother of James and Joseph and Judas, Judah and Simeon? Those are Jesus' uh, half-brothers. And are not his sisters here with us? And they were, notice it, offended at him. The same objection, basically. How can the carpenter be a Messiah? I mean, imagine visiting Jesus' hometown where he's performing um, his public ministry and you don't know where he's at. You don't know if he's in Nazareth or elsewhere, but you find, hey, this is his hometown. Let's go see if we can find him there. You've heard much about him and, and so you're seeking and you, and you come into Nazareth and say, hey, have, do you know Jesus? Of oh, I know Jesus of Nazareth, certainly. Uh, the Messiah. Oh, come on, Messiah? I got a chair over there that he built. That's a great chair. Oh, he did a great, great craftsman. That's what he should be doing. Maybe you run into one of his brothers. You know the ones mentioned here? Can I give you a little information on a couple of the brothers? Okay, let's go back here. 
It mentions, he mentions James. James will become the pastor of the Church of Jerusalem after Jesus' resurrection. He writes the book of James back in the back part of your Bible. You see where it says uh, Judah or Judas or Jude? That's the brother that writes the book of Jude in the back of your Bible. And these men, when they'll write it, by the way, will not say something like this. James, the half-brother of Jesus. Or Judas, or Judah, excuse me, or Jude. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. They won't say something like that. You know what they say to themselves? We're the bond slave of Jesus. Now, they weren't in that category when this is going on. If you read John chapter 7, which comes after uh, Mark chapter 6 in Jesus' chronology, from what I understand, his own brothers at this point didn't believe in him. So if you ran into James <coughs> in town, and you're looking for his, 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 what you call his brother, his half-brother really, but you call, hey James, we're, we're looking for, we're looking for a Jesus, uh, where's he at? Oh, I don't know, he's out preaching somewhere. Well, do you believe he's the Messiah? No, I don't. Hey, I grew up with him. He's my brother. Great carpenter, great preacher, doing some things that I can't explain. Messiah? 1 Corinthians 15 actually tells us that Jesus, after his resurrection, specifically appeared to James. Who goes from thinking he's my brother, he can't be the Messiah, to thinking he's the Son of God. That only happens because of the reality of the resurrection of Christ. He's a carpenter. He's Mary's son. And by the way, wasn't there a scandal around Mary's birth? Remember? On Jesus' birth with Mary? They didn't know who his father was? Don't think that didn't come up again. Matter of fact, when Jesus was talking to some of his enemies in John chapter 8, verse 41, they made this statement to him, we're not born of fornication. Why'd they bring that up? He's a brother to normal Jewish young men. He's a, he's a brother to normal Jewish young ladies. They're right here in our community. It's hard to imagine him as Messiah. And be careful that you don't get to the place where you become so familiar with the things of God, the word of God, the people of God, that you miss God himself. Now, there's this different expression. There's no violent uprising at this point, whether it be the fact that Jesus has some disciples with him, and that wouldn't be uh, probably go well, or for whatever reason. But I want you to notice the last part of verse 3, the last sentence there, it says, and they were offended at him. The word offended is literally, in the, if you're going to pronounce it into uh, the Greek word in English, it's scandalizo, or scandalizo, about that word, scandal. The word means to cause to stumble. To act as an occasion of transgression. They were stumbled at Jesus. They made the same observation. They made the same objection. They made a different expression. The expression isn't take him out and see if we can kill him. The expression is to stumble over him. To, to be offended at him. So I want to give you a prophecy of this, actually. It's Isaiah chapter 8, verses 13 to 15. The Lord of hosts, 
Him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. He will be a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both houses of Israel as a trap and as a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. What is he saying? He's saying that, that when some people will accept Jesus as Messiah, other people will walk away, even though they may be familiar with him, will walk away into their own destruction. So why would... By the way, if you want a New Testament reference along the same line, it's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 to 9. Why would people of Nazareth take offense at Jesus' claims of being Messiah? Could be jealousy. Hey, why not their son? If it's going to be somebody from Nazareth, it's a podunk town, why not my son? Why not me? Maybe it's pride. Sometimes people do not like to... Uh, to uh, uh, the wild believers excited about Jesus being Messiah. Maybe they thought they were too wise for that. They knew too much of Jesus for that. Maybe it's lust. Sometimes people are convinced that a life of sin is, is great and that Jesus is going to mess that up and they don't want Christ putting, putting up a influence, a, a interference on that. Maybe it's the influence of some rabbi in the area that was saying that Jesus is not the Messiah, that he was a fake and, and people want to go along with him. But for whatever reason, these people are offended at Christ. They're not going to listen to him. Which then brings us to the last part of this passage, which is the Lord's response to this. How does Jesus react? And what you find is in verse 4, there's one reaction. Verse 5, there's another. And verse 6, um, you'll find a, a, another. So let's notice, if you would, he gives them similar truth. Almost the same what he said before. Look at verse 4 again. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. Almost exactly what he said a year earlier. Unfortunately, you think you're familiar with me, and you're, you're mistaking faith for familiarity. You, you're thinking that, that just uh, knowing, um, knowing me is the same thing as knowing me as Messiah. And it's not. And it's funny, isn't it, that he's repeating himself? You know, repetition is necessary either because we forget or we do not understand or we fail to apply. And, of course, all of those could be involved in this as these people have been offended at him. But I want you to notice in verse 5, this limited activity. It says, and now think about these words here. And he could do there no mighty work. Think of that. He could do there no mighty work save that he laid his hands on a few sick folk and healed them. Limited activity. Why does this verse say that Jesus could do no mighty work? And I'll tell you, theologians have struggled with that. Is it, um, is it in the fact, and this is a possibility, that people themselves were not coming to him for help? Ah, he can't help you. Someone's sick. Oh, don't bother him with that. He doesn't care about that. Love one that's a leper, don't worry about it. He's not real. He's not for real. He's just a fake. Is it the fact that few were coming for help? Maybe. Is it because few wanted help? You know, it's sad, but when a person is determined to reject the Lord, many times they don't want to believe. They don't want facts. They don't want any help. They don't want to listen. And that could be part of it too. 
But I would say something that I was talking about a week or two ago. And that is, I believe that God has chosen at times to tie his work to your faith or your unbelief. That in many cases, you're going to determine how much God will work in your life. Let me give you some examples. We talked about these last week, so I'm just going to pop them up quickly. How about the examples of respond when Christ responded to faith? These were all, by the way, in the Gospel of Matthew before Matthew comes to this event. I'm using Mark's account, but it's the same thing. The leper, remember he comes and he says, Lord, you can help me. I know you can. Would you do it? And Jesus said, I would. How about the centurion? I talked about him a moment ago. He had never even met Jesus. He said, you know what? You can heal my servant without even coming to my house. Jesus said, I haven't seen so great faith in all of Israel. How about the unnamed multitude that came to him bringing their loved ones, bringing maybe themselves. Whatever person had a demon problem, they were sick, whatever it was, Jesus helped them. How about the paralytic? Who Remember, they let him down from the, from the roof. Remember that? Where they couldn't get to him. And Jesus looks at him. He says, your sins are forgiven. And why? Because he saw their faith. That specifically was not just his faith, but the faith of his friends as well. How about Jesus responding to Jairus' faith? You remember that? When Jairus comes to him when he's got his daughter dying? And Jesus says, uh, don't be afraid, only believe. And how about the woman that arrests him along the way, touches his garment and stops the whole thing for a few moments because she had enough faith to come and at least touch Christ's dark garment, believing that he could heal her. But have you ever thought about examples of how God did not work because of unbelief? Just give you a couple quickly, the 12 spies. So a painting of the 12 spies from uh, Joseph Tissot. Numbers 13 and 14, specifically God uh, leaves the children of Israel in the wilderness, condemns them for 40 years to be out there because of their unbelief. Hebrews addresses that very fact. How about the brazen serpent? Kind of an interesting painting. I don't know if you can see it from where you're at. But, it's a, but that's a rendition of the artist of the brazen serpent. And you got every person in that painting is not looking at it. And the key to being healed was looking at the serpent. Now, again, these are normal people. Maybe he's picturing the, the generation of his day not looking for any help from God. But the reality is, is that if you didn't look, you would not be healed. How about the example of the disciples' failure to cast out a demon? Do you know what Jesus said to them when they came to him and said, why couldn't we cast the demon out? You know what he said? Because of your unbelief. Every lost soul, every lost soul is lost because of unbelief. I want you just to go to John chapter 3. It's only two books toward the back from where you're at. I'm coming back for one more verse. Um, when, when, so keep your finger in mark if you would. But John chapter 3, Jesus is hitting on this subject of belief or lack of it. He even referenced Moses and the serpent in verse 14. But let's skip down to probably the most famous verse in the Bible, verse 16. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him, notice it, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, this is a positive side of belief. Now, when I say that when Jesus is talking about belief, he's not talking about merely just knowing the facts. He's talking about a faith that makes a difference in how you live. That you're going to bank your soul on Christ and his righteousness and not on your own. That you're going to let him call the shots in your life and not yourself. He's talking about a faith that is real, that, that makes a difference in how you live. Not just an agreement. 
And so he's saying that the person who believes has everlasting life. Okay, but look at verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not, there's unbelief, is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. There's the, the two sides of it. Every person that's lost is lost because of a failure to believe in Jesus. Well, there's actually two things that come out of our last verse. If you want to go back to, to Mark chapter 6. We've seen in the Lord's response to these unbelieving people, we saw him giving similar truth. And backing up and saying the same thing he said a year earlier. Prophet's not without honor except in his own country. He's limited his activities, not blessing like he would normally do. And you'll notice in his grieved amazement, verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. There's only two times in the New Testament that the Bible talks about Jesus marveling. And one time was the great faith of the centurion. Who said, Lord, you can, you can heal my servant without even coming into my house. And the other one was right here at the great unbelief of his hometown. Grieved amazement. Shocked at how hardened, how unbelieving they could be. The second reaction is he worked elsewhere. Look at verse 6 again. He marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. You know what that means? It means he went elsewhere. He moved on. He moved away from those who were determined to reject him on the people who would accept him. That brings us to some conclusions. Number one, the people of Nazareth thought they were too familiar with Christ to believe in him. Have you been there? Maybe you're there right now. Maybe you've been in this church 50 years. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how familiar you are with the scripture, there's a difference between familiar with the scripture, familiar with the Bible, and knowing God. There's a world of difference. Say, so how do I know the difference in how you live? When, you, when, when Christ is really living in your life, he makes a difference in how you live. Decisions you make, why you make those decisions. Number two. The people of Nazareth could not deny the wise words of Jesus or the miraculous signs that he had done. They couldn't deny that. They're, they're actually saying that. There's the great works that he's done. There are the great teachings that he has. But the people of Nazareth were offended by Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. Too close to him. He's the carpenter. We know his brothers and sisters by, uh, you know, how can you go, how can you say he's Messiah? Number four, few miracles. People of Nazareth saw few miracles because they expected few. Matter of fact, I would submit to you, they didn't want to see them. That's number five. They didn't seem to want to believe. And finally, the people of Nazareth showed unbelief is a choice. And it's often against the evidence. It's not that these people didn't have a choice to believe. They didn't want to believe. They heard firsthand Jesus' wise teachings. They knew Jesus' miracles. They did not, uh, yet they did not believe in him. This shows that many unbelieving people are not truth seekers. They are truth rejectors. Let me give you a couple ways to apply this. Number one, and really in questions. Number one, does my life bear out belief or unbelief? 
Don't talk to me about what you say you believe. How's your life? Is it matching up with living out the Christian life to the best of your ability before God? Is what God says, is that your governing authority? We talked about that in Sunday school this morning um, as we just finished up one part of how the Bible is to be our rule of authority. Does that play out in your life? Remember that, that belief and obedience are linked as unbelief and disobedience are linked. By the way, you can show this in the scriptures. I can show you verses on this. Faith and faithfulness are basically the same thing. So does my life bear out belief or unbelief in Christ? And number two, do I want the truth? Or am I determined to deny it? That's where the people of Nazareth seem to be. They knew he was doing miracles. They could hear his teaching. They did not want to believe. And Jesus marveled at that. I just have, I have two closing thoughts. Number one, Jesus is grieved by willful unbelief. And number two is a challenge. Turn to him before he moves on. There's a day coming. Jesus goes where, you know, people often say, well, it seems so unfair. The gospel is in the English-speaking world, and, and it's not made as much inroads other places. Can I tell you, if you look at church history, that's really not true. You know where the gospel started? It started in the Middle East. It went to Africa. Africa had the gospel long before we did went up into Europe, Asia. Say, why was there such a movement in England, North America? Because people listened. God goes where people listen. And I'm not saying try to reach those that, that haven't heard I, at all about that. We support missionaries. We do it, on, we do it uh, intentionally, trying to reach people that have never heard. But I will tell you this. That if people are unwilling to listen, God does move on. And that's one of the most terrifying things that can ever happen to an individual. Is when God moves on. Father, help us. This is a sobering message that our Lord gave. It's really not even a message here we're looking at. We're looking at just a couple statements, but it's more of what he did. Lord, he came back. He gave his hometown another chance, even if they tried to kill him maybe a year or so before. Not much progress. No, the violence wasn't there, but the offense was still there. I know too much. I'm too familiar. Don't need him. Don't believe. Oh, Lord, I, I don't know who your word is touching this morning, but I do pray that your word would find deep root and that you and your mercy might not forsake anyone seated in this room this morning. Lord, I also think about our country at large. We have had so many blessings in this land, and we have been far from perfect. We have done many things wrong. We all know that. But we have been blessed like few nations in the, in the history of this world, 
And much of it has been tied to the fact that there has been many godly people who have lived by your principles. And they work. And you've blessed way beyond what anything we would ever deserve. But Lord, my fear is that you will take the, the grief and the, and the rejection of so many in our society in many ways you might take your hand off our nation. Lord, we would desire your mercy. Lord, we think of what's going on right now on the world stage. We, again, you know all things. But what happens in nations and, and continents and all the rest, Lord, honestly, it's all made up of what's happening in individual hearts. And so we pray for those seated right here this morning, for every soul represented. Lord, please deliver us from thinking I'm too familiar. I, I, I know the in and out. I can explain the gospel. And thinking somehow knowing and believing are the same thing. Lord, I pray for those who may be lost this morning, that you bring them to yourself. Lord, call back Christians who may have wandered from thee. Help all of us to realize that you are our master and we need to follow you with all of our hearts. Amen. As we close today, let me add that there's a difference between lack of faith and unbelief. You may be a person who lacks faith in God and his goodness. Maybe you face some difficulties that convince you that if there was a God, he sure did not love you. So at this point in your life, you lack faith in God. Unbelief is different. Unbelief says, I won't believe. Tragically, that's where many of the people in Jesus' hometown were at. They had heard of the many miracles he had done. They knew from firsthand experience that he was a remarkable teacher, yet they would not accept that Jesus of Nazareth was their Messiah and obey his commands to repent of their sins. Would you be willing to at least consider the claims of Christ again? Why not pray this prayer with me right now? God, if you are there, I would like to know you. That prayer won't save your soul, but it might be an important first step on the road to finding God. If you would like some spiritual help, like counseling or prayer, you can email us at help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Again, that email address is help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. If you'd like to listen to this message again or send it to a friend, the link to this podcast is at RadioBold.com slash CalkinsBaptist. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. Lasting life and light, he 